Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jet McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. Last week was our Christmas episode, but we're recording just before Christmas. This is going up, you know, just before Christmas. So, Steve, let me give you your present. This is actually a late birthday present, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm selling it. I'm selling the sound. Can you hear that? Physical Russell, Russell, evidence Russell. of thing. I'm going to put it under the tree. No, no, you need to open it now. No, let I can't open it now. Let me check. Let me write. This is your late birthday present. Okay. You need to open it on air. This is the whole point. I've got you. I'll have, you'll have another Christmas present. I didn't get Steve a birthday present. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> in related news. It's 100 years old, Steve. Stop, <laughs> stop riffing like that. <laughs> in, in related news, uh, Jack knows that I've got him, uh, Lakeisha and Xavier, Chris Jones, because as he came up the stairs, about half hour earlier than he normally arrives in my house after work, uh, I was just running out of my bedroom having hidden... Oh, my God. Whoa! Yeah, there you go. Published 100 years ago this year, Steve. Do you want to tell oh them what God. it is? Cause, uh... It's a book called South London by Walter Besson, published by Chateau and Windus. You heard of them? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, green hardback with gold embossed design of a cast one. A cover of yeah, I don't know. Greenwich Palace? Possibly, yeah. Um, absolutely... Uh, beautiful right up your alleys yeah just it? like uh, miscut pa- end papers uh, right, browning <laughs> yeah. I mean have you got a receipt but, uh, also uh, oh my god have you had a look inside I had a quick look yeah oh wow you see this those initials it looks like from Mr. Sakel Dulwich Village both of those That's inscriptions funny, I, ended up in get, I got it on Amazon so oh wow I'm going to put it I, I know what you said I'm putting it under the Christmas tree though just because it feels like a uh, it looks good. Oh, that's a, you call that a Christmas tree, Steve? Yeah, there's my Christmas characters over that side. When I worked in Waterstones in Oxford Street, um, they there was for sale. Jack didn't put works in inverted commas. I'll do that for him. <laughs> there was a Christmas tree in a box, right? And they probably have that in every Waterstones. It's a tiny miniature Christmas tree in a box. And this guy, this temp, uh, goes, uh, "That's the second most depressing thing I've ever seen." <laughs> And number one was uh, the Pizza Hut wedding day special. <laughs> <laughs> Could we just fry pepperoni at the uh, yeah. bride and groom? No, wouldn't it be the stuff in the shaker, the, the chili flakes? <laughs> Parmesan cheese. No, the chili flakes were yeah. off the table. <laughs> so we've been going a year, basically, uh, and we finally got round to Charlie Chaplin. This is a Hall of Fame episode, and Christmas Day. Uh, marks the 35th anniversary of Chaplin's death. Uh, it's also the 20th anniversary of the release of the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Chaplin film, which we'll talk about a bit at the end. For a long time, probably, the most famous man in the world, the most recognisable, yeah, certainly. absolutely. Was he the first global superstar? In the, you know, his name and his face would have been recognised around the world. You could show someone a picture. Because, like, obviously... You know, during times yeah. of empire, people would have known of uh, the king or the queen. Yeah. But they wouldn't know what they look like. No, and there'd there'd be... no moving images, would no. they? No, and, and sort of Dickens. I mean, Shakespeare, we're still not entirely sure. No, it's all nice. It's the guy with the earring, isn't it? Shakespeare. <laughs> but yeah, he's surely the first person where, you know, this accident of events where, with the birth of cinema, and obviously there were film stars before him, but not really anyone, I don't think. Not on the same level, No. no. You're a big fan, Steve, of uh, confluences, aren't you? I am. 
Yeah, I do like. Uh, so you're aware of the uh, free events of uh, April eighteen eighty nine, aren't you? Am I? No, I'm not. April eighty nine, right? Eighteen eighty nine. Charlie Chaplin born. Yeah. Hitler's born. Yeah. Same month. All oh, right. And uh, Thomas Edison invents uh, the kinetoscope, oh. which uh, you know forerunner yeah. to the movie camera. So Chaplin was born the same time as cinema. Yeah. Wow. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So we, yeah, we're going to be talking about Chaplin's uh, films uh, shortly, and it will probably culminate in the Great Dictator, won't it? So we'll certainly come back to that. So East Street in Woolworth, one nine one East Street, April eighteen eighty nine. Charlie Chaplin is born, Steve. Yeah, various theories and whatnot put forward but I think we said in the previous show uh, the East Street show would have been uh, Chaplin considered yeah, East Street opening line of his uh, autobiography I was born in East Street yeah. whatever he says something like that. <laughs> but no I mean um, I think my dad's my dad is uh, a huge Chaplin fan you know he's got uh, three obsessions in life I suppose outside of you know Christian can I guess what they are you know what they are he's <laughs> Football, specifically Dulwich Hamlet football club. Yeah, or Dulwich, yeah. Dulwich Hamlet, yeah. Uh, music, specifically. Bodily. Yeah, but you don't have to get the subcategory. No, but... It's only the subcategory. <laughs> Hamlet, Dylan, Chaplin. Yeah, exactly. So he was, so a lot, I had a lot of resources to draw on, uh, I must admit. And, uh, Are we doing a Dylan episode at some point? We should, shouldn't we? We'll find a way. You'd he played uh, London Calling at Brixton Academy. There we go. Yeah, so he said that um I think it was Chaplin's grandparents had a property in East Street, which is where he would have but the the birth was never registered, which is why people, you know, people start, you know, throwing theories out and stuff, but I don't think we need to dwell on it too much, Steve. He was born in East Street and he <laughs> most definitely grew up in Kenning, didn't he? Can we not share my favourite alternate theory? Well, he was a gypsy. Yeah. Gypsy uh, caravan site up in uh, Smethwick, I think it was. Seems unlikely, doesn't it? That they found a letter in his uh, personal blog. after he died, and it was someone claiming that. And uh, one of his kids said he wouldn't have kept it if it wasn't significant. But um, I think you would, wouldn't you? I'd definitely. If someone sent me a letter saying uh, you were born in a gypsy well, campsite, I'd keep it. He wrote a book called My Trip Abroad in 1921 about his trip to Europe, which I'll come to. Um, but he got so many letters when he came back, he had thousands of letters. He, he details loads of them. He goes through, there's like a chapter where he's going through it letter <laughs> by letter. I only cut out one from uh, Mrs. Violet Payne of uh, Angel Road in Brixton. You know it? I don't. But Angel I'm, with double L, but I presume it's where Angel Town is. Yeah, that's a double L. Yeah. Town, it? Yeah. Um, she wrote, Is Probably there any. demolished to make place for. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine so, yeah. yeah. She wrote, is there any chance of you requiring for your films the services of twin small boys, nearly four years old and nearly indistinguishable? You know, it's just, he got stacks of letters. People yeah, saying, yeah. come round my house for tea. Yeah. You know, you did you know you were born in a caravan miles away? <laughs> so he grew up in a free pound, pound hall terrace, which has been demolished. Apparently he tried to buy it just before it was, you know, demolished, it was too late or whatever. Yeah, it was basically all around Wolf and Kennington, wasn't it? They, yeah. they, they moved a lot of families. A yeah. lot of families did at that time, didn't they? It was, you know, particularly they were incredibly poor. You know, it would have been a constant struggle to pay the rent, a constant failure to pay the rent, eviction, move on somewhere else. You know, the cycle uh, continues. Do you know where he had his uh, first theatre performance, Steve? I know you're a big fan of uh, early 20th century theatre. It wasn't in London, was it? 
Yeah. What was it? At the uh, Montpellier in Woolworth. Oh, which okay. is where the Beehive now stands. You know the oh, Beehive right. and the yeah, P5 yeah. route? Yeah. Um, the Beehive Tavern and Tea Gardens. Man, like Laurie Moore Square, it sounds massive. But, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's difficult to track it down a bit. Do you know what I mean? Because it's all estates now. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's all been knocked down. Um, yeah, oh, some of the things that have been in the round Woolworth in terms of tea gardens, pleasure gardens, circuses. Oh, so, and the music hall, which, yeah. you know, again, music hall will come up throughout, I, I imagine. Um, yeah, stacks of stuff. He lived on Munton Road as well, actually, just round the back of the Haygate. And the only reason I know where Munton Road is is because my sister's got a photo standing next to the sign because she was a uh, kind of hot teacher in her school. was called Mr. Munton. <laughs> so she was like, look at me. <laughs> yeah, so his dad died of alcoholism in uh, St. Thomas's Hospital. Just throwing out their South London place names for people, Steve, you know. Absolutely. Take it off. Can yeah, take it. yeah. Yeah, leaving him, his mother and his brother. Well, his half-brother, but they just consider themselves brothers, didn't they? Yeah, who uh, eventually went to Hollywood with him, didn't That's he? Right, and yeah. uh, I was watching The Kid yesterday with my dad, and he pointed out his brother in a small role. Oh, was it? it? Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah, so after his father died, it left Chaplin, his brother, and his mother uh, as a unit. Uh, his mother struggled throughout her life with mental illness, which meant she wasn't uh, a great provider. So they spent a lot of time, uh, him and his brother, in approved schools and workhouses, essentially, uh, while their mother was in mental institutions. Even when Chaplin became successful, uh, he managed to set her up in a house, but it wasn't, he couldn't, you know, what can you do? You The limits of medicine. Um, but yeah, it, became, it sort of fell to Chaplin and his brother to become the providers for the family. Um, initially did this with uh, sort of casual labouring, around the area but um, he's I mean there's a scene in uh, the Chaplin uh, biopic where his mum has a, a, a breakdown on stage and a young Chaplin goes on stage to sort of save the day yeah. and that scene is dramatic licence a little bit because like the kid's like five and it's not for like another seven years yeah. where and like he gets a standing ovation if it went like that you sort of go put him out again <laughs> definitely put don't even bother putting the mum out to get stuff thrown at her just put him out mm. straight away um but yeah, it becomes um, sort of uh, 11, 12. He sort of falls into uh, performance. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll do a show on this at some point. South London was a hotbed. Oh, the musical, musical. episode is Absolutely, coming, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. You were a bit just cautious Just record at first, it, Steve. But I think me, just... I'll, I'll upload it for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chaplin began to perform around the area and, and soon um, fell under the gaze of Fred Carno, who was one of the leading impresarios at the time. Um, Chaplin got a blue plaque at the top of East Street to indicate he was born here. 30th of September this year, Fred Carnot was given a blue plaque. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where's that? That's in Southall Road in Camberwell, oh, which right. was the site of uh, what was known as Fred Carnot's Fun Factory. Um, his, uh, I think his great-grandchildren were there for the unveiling of the plaque. But, yeah, Fred Carnot, a huge figure in yeah. sort of South London variety. We won't spoil people with too much No, no, I mean, you know, for the, for the sake of today's episode, you need to know Chaplin yeah. went to work for Carnot. It was a huge step in his start mm. because Carnot then did tours to the States where yeah. Chaplin was seen by film producers. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it, the Carnot uh, connection is, is a huge moment for Chaplin. And sort of turns him from being a jobbing performer uh, around... South London to the top line performer that ends up headlining tours to the States. In another related note to uh, 
the Carno days. And again, I think we might mention this in a previous episode. Um, another member of the Carno troupe at that point was Stan Laurel. Uh, yeah. Obviously, before his days uh, in Lauren Hardy. Um, at that, this point, I think it's fair to say he was best known as Chaplin's understudy, which is quite interesting. Uh, well, hence the hat. Yeah? Don't know, but but you know the, the bowler hat of South London in in uh, invention. Yeah, there, as so. we well know. Yeah, mm. one of the things he did. This is not really South London related. But I'm throwing it in, Steve. Um, one of the Fred Carno things he did was uh, a show at the London Coliseum. You know, on St Martin's Lane. Oh yeah. You know, with the revolving uh, globe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which says Coliseum on it still. Um, he did a show called the Football Match, which. Uh, was uh, they said it was a realistic football match in the rain? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds great, doesn't it? I'm yeah, not, like, I'm, I'm quite against theatre, as you know. But like, uh, if there was football matches on stage, well, I'm fascinated by musical and variety, as you know, and it's things like that that fascinate me. Particularly the fact that there's no uh, film footage of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when you hear things like that, you're like. They did what? And you do sort of, in the same way as, um, you know, I'm fascinated, and it's, it's obviously connected, um, sort of stage conjuring of the time, you know, uh, the sort of mechanisms behind it, and the ideas as well, you know. This is what fascinates me, it's the fact that you've got people who have limited resources, you know, they haven't got special effects, they haven't got technology in the same way we've got, which is why, you know, particularly in Chaplin's case, if you look at it, so much of what he did was about him himself as a physical object. He used the resource that he could trust, which was obviously he used other things. There is wire work and lots of, you know, very early form special effects there. But the core of it is about physical performance, isn't it? So with Carno, Chaplin tours America. Uh, Max Sennett, who's the the leading uh, producer of early comic films, hears about him, sends a telegram asking Fred Carno if he has a man called Chaffin. In his company, because you know this isn't—it's not the internet, is it? There's no, no Twitter. No. no one's hashtagging Charlie Chaplin, are mm. they? Um, and eventually, they work out who he is, and he goes along uh, to audition for Max Sennett. Doesn't knock him out straight away. Sennett's not sure; thinks he looks a bit young. Uh, but then, once he sees Chaplin perform a couple of times, he realizes what he's got in his hands. His uh, debut for the Sennett Studios is making a living, and then his next film debuts. Uh... His, you know, famous creation, the Tramp character in Kid Auto at the Races. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think Kid Auto at the Races is uh, Venice is the one that's released first, but he films Mabel's Strange Predicament before that. All right. So, but it's across those two films essentially that yeah. the character of the Tramp is is born. The iconic Chaplin is the Tramp, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the whereas... moustache and the hat and uh, it's all it's the iconography, isn't it? It's the cane. It's the shoes. It's, it's everything. It's all the things mm. elegantly put into it works so well. Yeah, the walk that, uh, according to one of his teachers at Victory Primary School, you know, in Woolworth, mm. um, he copied it from an old man who used to give oatmeal and water to the horses uh, <laughs> outside the Elephant Castle. Yeah, it's such a multifaceted character, the Tramp. You know, Chaplin talks about, you know, the moustache is... Uh, Represents the vanity of man, and his hat and cane is uh, an attempt to be dignified, and his boots are the impediments that always get in his way. And he might be reading a bit too much, or kind of not reading too much, but sorry, you know, adding that stuff on after Hindsight's the fact. 2020. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But 
he says uh, that he starts off he started off as this kind of parody but by the time particularly around I think he said this around the time of City Lights so he's talking about that being a, kind of maybe a turning point yeah he says uh, that the character persists in growing more and more human perhaps a little nearer to the heart of things you know as each film went by are you familiar Steve with Tom Brown he uh, illustrated a comic called Illustrated Chips yes yeah. And uh, um, a couple of tramps in it called Weary Willie and Tired Tim. Yeah, Illustrated Chips was one of the first comics, essentially, in, in the form that we'd know it, with sort of strips and characters that had ongoing adventures, yeah. Yeah, Chaplin was a huge fan. And uh, Tom Brown was great. It is like, is a, um, a really, really good artist. Well, you were chatting to Owen about it the other day, weren't you? About yeah, very briefly, yeah. yeah. I think he'll... It'll come up at some point because they're based. He lived in Blackheath. He was from, I think, Nottingham, but he worked from Blackheath. And the two tramps that were, you know, huge, a huge, a huge comic at the time, were based on two tramps near his Blackheath home. And that was kind of a big influence on Chaplin, apparently. You know, uh, creating the tramp character. There are dozens and dozens of shorts. So I mean, you would have to be uh, quite committed to have seen them all. Or even to have seen many, to be honest. Or your dad could be mad about you. <laughs> just like, put him on a drop of the hat. He's got at least three copies of the kid. If you're looking for recommendations, The Immigrant is great. Really great, but with a coin in a restaurant where he sort of finds a coin and he loses it again and keeps going back. That's really good. And A Dog's Life. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. That's that brilliant. On your right? recommendation, yeah. Yeah, that, he's, uh, it's a bit like the kid, isn't it? Um, but with a dog. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the bit where he has the dog in his trousers. It's um, uh, That's one of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of him as a performer. The amount of stuff he does with uh, dogs is incredible. Yeah. Considering, you know, obviously we've, we're much more used to seeing performing animals on screen. But um, they don't seem particularly well trained, these dogs, do they? No, nah, no, he does marvellous work. He just works things. around them, it seems. Yeah, it's like. a bit of a running theme, isn't it? Yeah. As is uh, seasoning food, mostly with salt. Yeah. You know, it's eating just, things. He's just non-stop but, salting things up. But also he? eating things that aren't food as food <laughs> yeah. is another thing, isn't it? The kid seems to be the kind of uh, a bit of a watershed. Well, it was, It was. was. I think it was Chaplin's first directed feature, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. He directed so. shorts up to that point um, and appeared in features. But as far as I understand, the kid was the first feature that he, he directed. And, you know, when we say directed... He's yeah you know, yeah you know, the role of director. When we think of directors nowadays, it's very much them shaping the look of the film yeah. alongside cinematographers mm. and sound recorders and working in collaboration with a large group of people. Whereas at this point, your director, you know, Chaplin wrote, directed. I'm not sure about it, but certainly in later films, you know, writing the music. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a remarkable well, I mean, smile, and not just like knocking out a tune like uh, no, say like Woody Allen or. Um... Robert Rodriguez or someone, you know. He, you know, smile when your heart is breaking. Yeah, he's a true auteur, isn't he? That's he's... the thing, is it's the auteur, it's the vision where you can control the look, the sound and the feel of the movie, which, you know, and obviously you've got, you know, other directors, uh, you know, Scorsese and Tarantino, who, uh, and, you know, Wes Anderson, who obviously take a lot of time about soundtracking their films and, mm. and that's a skill as well and also enhances the, the sort of experience. But, you know, to be able to score your film, to control every element of it in terms of sound and vision, I think is, uh, yeah, remarkable. Yeah, I and mean, beyond that, I mean, you know, he's, the costumes are often, you know, his work, you know, sketching sets apparently for things, you know, 
being very involved in the lighting and obviously being in it. I mean, you know, I'd say probably, I'd say the closest comparison, in, you know, in the overall picture would probably be Woody Allen, I would yeah, say. Yeah, you know, absolutely. as in a writer, someone who's written, directed and starred in it because those are obviously the main three things. Yeah. You know, the music is, you know, it's another thing. But... Because as, as I say, that then sets the tone, doesn't it? Your performance, yeah, your central yeah. performance, you know. And in both of those cases as well, they are, uh, they're very, they're unique visions, aren't they? You know, there's no mm. one that can really, no one tries to ape Woody Allen because you can't. No one tries to ape Chaplin because you can't. It would just be impossible. It would be a waste of your time. If you haven't seen The Kid, um, you must. It's, I think it absolutely holds up. It's my favourite Chaplin film. Um, I think it, it holds up completely, like, the fruit from start to finish. Time is not always kind to comedy. Like, you know, you even, you watch things from, you know, even the 90s. You watch things from, <laughs> no, but seriously, yeah, you, know, you watch things right. yeah. like from the 90s with a laugh track or you listen to like a stand-up record from the 60s or... First five, five episodes of 30 Rock. <laughs> it just seems to age quicker than uh, a lot of things. And even and that's, that's not uh, not all of Chaplin's stuff holds up, obviously, because some of it is so old, some of it just doesn't. But the kid, from start to finish, it's still wonderful. And you still sit there laughing through it. And it's interesting as well. There's so many things in there that we consider tropes and could even be considered cliches. But you ha- again, you have to remember the time this was made. If you're the first person to do it, then, you know, uh, kicking a policeman in the seat of the pants isn't a cliche or a trope. It's you kicking a policeman in the seat of the pants. You know, the kid throwing the stone and then, you know, as he winds up to do- make the yeah, throw, yeah, that's wonderful, catching yeah. the eye of the, the police. That, you know... If that's the first time it's done, then, you know, you have to applaud someone for being the visionary yeah. rather than sort of going, I've seen that before. You've seen it before because everyone copied that. You know, that's the thing to remember. The boy's great, and he, Jackie Coogan. He's, he's wonderful. Yeah, remarkable, isn't it? Um, and they make, it's, such, it's such a great chemistry between them. It's a woman's great. forced to abandon her baby. Yeah, and uh, Chaplin finds a baby, and he's trying to get rid of it. And that's, that's great. Isn't that's it? tremendous. Isn't it? That that's the thing. That that is something that you wouldn't get in a modern film. The idea of someone finding a baby and then just trying to. There's a bit where he looks at a drain. <laughs> yeah. He just looks at a drain, yeah, and then someone walks past. You, I can't really. Not if someone's watching. <laughs> but you couldn't. You couldn't. No. I don't know if you could do it. You, you know, Adam Sandler maybe could joke about finding a baby down the drain. But um, great bit where he like leaves it in a woman's pram but she catches him yeah uh, and then s- at some point the baby gets into someone else's hands and they put it in the same woman's pram he's walking past thinking <laughs> yeah. he's done the job she spots the baby and the policeman walks past it's, it's brilliant yeah, absolutely brilliant but yeah he ends up uh, raising the kid it cuts to five years later and him and the, the uh, kid have got this scam going but the kid will throw a stone smash a window and he comes along you know walks past he's a glazer got a bit of glass on his back <laughs> and he goes oh I'll, you know I'll fix up your uh, window um but yeah, they kind of get busted, you know, by a policeman. And but it's just a bit where they're both where they're walking off. Chaplin's walking off, and the kid is coming up to him to kind of like walk with him, and he's just kicking the kid away, yeah. like you know, <laughs> but you're not with me. Look, pretend you're not with me. Oh, and it's such a beautiful moment, man. It's so perfectly done. That is, um, as you say, just in terms of comic timing. There's other great sequences where the kid ends up in a fight with another kid. And the kids, yeah. like, the other kids are like twice size him, but the kid just batters him, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, it, there's a sort of break where uh, Chaplin, they sort of break up the fight, and Chaplin takes the kid over to and he's like coaching him. Yeah. He's like, going, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. But then the other guy's brother turns up. The big up, brother comes huge. up, who's, yeah, who's wearing padded suit. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a great bit where he comes over uh, to sort of have a word with Chaplin. As soon as Chaplin sees him and realises him, 
he goes. There's no, no transitions there. He just sort of he's going from coaching, coaching, coaching. Catches the eye, you horrible boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the drama in it as well, Steve. I think is uh, great. You know, the kind of the they gets obviously it comes to light that it's not his actual son. He's just raising him, and the the uh, is it a doctor who reports it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's this, the, the whole separation it. scene is tremendous, isn't it's, it? It's sort of like so much emotion. Yeah, yeah. Because they fight it as well, don't they? Yeah, That's the other they do. Thing. The sort of that running they're... along rooftops yeah. to keep it's on this kid. It really is just sort thrown of... into the back of a kid van. Yeah, but yeah, we won't go for reference. No, we absolutely. Won't spoil yeah. it for people, but it ends with uh... the reverie. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, the dream sequence. Yeah, which is uh, would be bold and postmodern if it turned up in a film today. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, Very but the, the sort of great use of uh, early special effects clearly just. You know, simple editing. Yeah, people on stri- on ropes and stuff as well. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, very slickly done for the time. I thought I should let the listeners in on a little secret, Steve. We have just had a break because you've uh, cooked us a Christmas dinner, haven't you? Yeah, it was the uh, first inaugural Southern Hardcore Christmas dinner. Yeah, maybe next year everyone can come. Not here. I mean, we can do one. Maybe next year it'll be gravy. Yeah, you can. As do opposed one. to uh, yeah, yeah, you failed on gravy. Mistake, fun. Yeah. What yeah. stock Pro tip. Uh, even if you put the whole packet of beef stock into the boiling water, <laughs> it doesn't make gravy. But it does make a delicious treat, doesn't it? Yeah, it's nice. A, but we weren't going to pour it over dinner. It's a bit like the show, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's meaty. You know, there's a lot of substance there. You know, it's good for you. But where's the gravy? <laughs> so this point, Chaplin is massive, and he's been away from England for some time. Uh, and in 1921, he takes a trip to Europe, uh, partly to promote the kid, I think. But, you know, also as a vacation, sentimental pilgrimage to the streets of my youth, he says. And he put out a book. I mean, the Chaplin's got an autobiography, which I haven't read. I've read, I've read the, the first paragraph and it's quite dull. And uh, the same goes for My Trip Abroad. I mean, you can read it on archive.org. Um, you just search for it, you know, My Trip Abroad, Charlie Chaplin. And it's packed with some great South London stuff. There's so much stuff in there, Steve. But he's not that great of a writer. It's like it's quite dull. Yeah, should have got it ghosted. Yeah, he kind of he hangs around with H.G. Wells, who he refers to as H.G. <laughs> and Bert, George Bernard Shaw. It's mostly those two. But yeah, he was. He always uh, had very, very strong links to um, South London, like to his to his roots. Like he was so sentimental about it. It seems like he such. You know, people like. Um, so like with Bowie, you know, kind of the other great South London artist. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's all kind of like Starman, you know, and like, you know what I mean? You don't... It's about being away, isn't it? It's yeah, about, yeah, whereas uh, Chaplin's much more like Springsteen or Jay-Z, isn't he? Well, if you look at the, the subject matter of so many of Chaplin's films, it is about uh, poverty and struggle. Mm. Well, like you said, as a kid, I mean, it could easily yeah. be the uh, the streets of Kennan, couldn't it? But, you know, the gold rush, city life is all about sort of struggling to make a living, you know. Yeah, City Lights. You said City Life. Yeah, so he gets the boat over. And then obviously the train off, gets to uh, Waterloo Station. And he's staying at the Ritz, right? And he, uh, as he's going over Westminster Bridge, he sees a bus that's heading to Kennerton. And he says he really wants to get on it. He just likes <laughs> going on and on about it. And yeah, he gets back there as soon as he can, basically. He's talking about Kennerton Baths, where he used to play hooky as a child. I want to shriek with laughter at being in the same old Kennerton. I love it. How lovely the Cockneys are. (laughs) 
but yeah, he gets mobbed in um, on the Lambeth Walk as well, and uh, like you know, he's as 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 we said, he's coming over as like the most famous person in the world. He says like the first people to recognise him were the kids um, in Kenneton. You know, he might be exaggerating a little bit, but he, you know, he's like mobbed there, and he says I too had followed celebrities in my time in Kenneton. He refers to the English kids as um, having blackened teeth and soft eyes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's like after the First World War, he seems to feel very sorry for people, you know, having gone through the war. You know, little did he know what was to come, you know, a couple of decades later. Yeah. Well, in the Chaplin uh, biopic, the scene where he goes back to South London is a combination of him getting mobbed, and there's another scene where he goes to a pub, and uh, he basically gets called out by this ex serviceman who uh, has a go at him for not serving during the war. And Chaplin, you know, said he was invalided out of his feet, ironically, I think. <laughs> they might have thought that was his actual walk. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, he talks about Kennet and Cross. You know, it was there that he discovered music. He talks about Baxter's Hall, if you remember that. There's an old music hall yeah. that's now gone, but, you know, quite a major one, it seems. Uh, how depressing Kennet and Park is, he says. And you'll like this, Steve, right? When he's going back to the Ritz another time, he says, uh, crossing Westminster Bridge, I enter mm-hmm. a new land. Like going back over the river, yeah, it's yeah. just like not Kent and it's no, not Lambeth. Exactly, yeah. A bit like on we are the Lambeth boys, you know, when they're kind of coming back and it's like this side of the river, people know these boys. <laughs> but yeah, he wants to show people Lambeth as well. Like I, I can't remember exactly who it was, but um, he said I want to show them Lambeth. I feel as if it's mine. He's kind of got such a firm grasp of his roots, like more than I'd ever realised. Park Lane is another world after the Elephant and Castle, yeah, which I think is harsh. <laughs> but now he talks about going to Leatherfoot and Castle for a coffee same old London coffee store with its bad tea and coffee <laughs> but yeah he ends up going to the rest of Europe and stuff uh, and then back to England and back over to America again and comes back again you know a couple of times before settling in uh, Switzerland <laughs> just briefly 25 years though Steve <laughs> one last last one Steve last little anecdote yeah I recall an old photographer's shop on the Westminster Bridge Road just before you come out to the bridge. I want to see it again. We get out there. I remember having seen a picture framed in that window when I was a boy. A picture of Dan Leno. Yeah. 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 And there's yeah. a plaque of his round the corner from Lakeisha's mum's, which is oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Who was an idol of mine in those days. The picture is still there. I tell my friends that I had my picture taken about 15 years ago and went inside to see if I could get one of the photos. My name is Chaplin, I told the person behind the counter. You photographed me 15 years ago. I want to buy some copies. I would have destroyed the negative long ago, the person behind the counter. Thus dismisses me. (laughs) Have you destroyed Mr. Leno's negative? I asked him. No, was the reply. But Mr. Leno is a famous comedian. (laughs) (laughs) Chaplin returns to America. Um... While he, you know, while he's worked there, he worked as they works for Senate, but soon outgrows him. And once his contract expires, he goes out on the open market and receives just ridiculous offers from all corners. Um, the first company he goes for is the SNA Film Company, but he doesn't really enjoy it. Uh, he's based in Chicago for a short time, and then eventually moves back to Los Angeles to work from their studios there. Um, but as soon as he gets a chance to get out of that deal, he goes to Mutual and First National. Making films as he goes, making shorts, but never really enjoying the experience of having to work with the studios and cooperate with the producers. Which leads then to the formation of United Artists, which is a company that he founds 
alongside Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith. So huge names, huge names. Just uh, yeah. Obviously, Michael uh, Semino would uh, later destroy it in uh, Heaven's <laughs> Gate. But... <laughs> I think our chronology went a little bit haywire there, didn't it, Steve? But that's all right, man. Yeah, we sort of yeah. Between and we're not going to talk about every single film. But, no, no, you know, no. So if you go, why aren't they talking about a woman in Paris? Well, <laughs> watch a woman in Paris and then get back to us with uh, relevant points. His next major feature is the Gold Rush. Yeah, nineteen twenty-five. Another good place to start. You know, well worth watching. Did you watch it recently? Yeah, I think. Which version did you watch? Oh, I don't know. Did it was it have talking in it? No. Oh, good, good. oh, the one with the voiceover? Yeah. No, no, I didn't watch that. No, no, there's a couple. No. Don't watch the 1942 version no. where uh, it's got a new score, which is fine. But, you know, Chaplin talks over it and stuff. And also kind of removes the, the ending, which is yeah. a bit strange. Yeah. But no, the Gold Rush is great, isn't it? Um, Another great sequence with a dog. Yeah, 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 on the dance floor. Yeah. The opening, not the opening shot, I mean, it opens with people walking up and down the mountain and stuff. But the first shot of Chaplin, I mean, it's obviously on a soundstage, but that's fine. It's just this kind of square, obviously, square frame. And Chaplin walks, wanders along the side of him on like a mountain path on a snowy mountain. And like, almost like the way he's walking is like as if he's going to fall off the mountain. <laughs> but he just kind of like sort of goes on one foot for a moment and then yeah. goes back around. But it's such a simple shot, but it's so wonderful, man. It just captures him perfectly, doesn't it? Nice. One of my, just one of my favourite shots of his, man. Yeah, most famous uh, for the scene of Chaplin eating a shoe. Yeah. Eating his boot, you know, it's uh, they're starving. Yeah, he's stuck in uh, a hut with uh, a couple of other guys and they're basically snowed in. All the food's gone. There's a great sequence where um, one of the other guys hallucinates Chaplin as a turkey or a chicken and he's just Chaplin uh, flapping around the room dressed as a giant chicken. Uh, and there's a nice... Uh, shot of that in the Chaplin biopic where uh, they sort of show you how the production would have been done where basically the hut's on a sound stage uh, you know there's a bit where it's shown on pivots being rocked from side to side by stage hands um, but yeah, and, and Chaplin wandering around with the head off his chicken suit directing the other actors <laughs> yeah because they um, did some shots with um, someone else in the chicken suit and it was just unusable apparently it just yeah. wouldn't match but yeah, the scene where he eats the shoe, though, Steve, you know, he's just, like, heavily sorting the shoe. He uh, he bowls the shoe up mm. and then brings it to the table and makes great show of uh, carving it, essentially, yeah, sort yeah. of dividing it between him and the other guy. And, uh, you know, one of them gets a sole and one of them gets the, the upper. Yeah, the way, the way he eats, eats the... He's pulling, like, nails out of yeah. the shoe. And he, like, eat, like licking them like they're bones. Yeah. Like, oh, it's tremendous, man. <laughs> and eating the uh, laces. Laces, like which, spaghetti. You know, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's another film, as I say, that sort of deals with struggle, isn't it? You know, mm. these people working to stay alive, essentially, in these uh, horrible conditions. Also features the role dance as well, doesn't it? Which yeah. Which becomes another sort of iconic uh, Chaplin piece. Again, referenced in the uh, Chaplin film in another... Yeah, Scott. yeah, that was the kind of uh, pub, uh, promotional clip that went round. Yeah, it? yeah, With him, uh, Robert Downey Jr. doing the role dance. Yeah, uh, the role dance being where Chaplin yeah uh, gets a couple of bread rolls, turns them into makeshift boots, and uh, has them pirouetting, spinning, and dancing around the table. 
I don't want to, you know, I think we can give bits away in it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, 90 years on, you can give plot points <laughs> Spoiler alert. But yeah, he kind of, he ends up a millionaire in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, this is kind of a common thing with uh, the Trump character, is that everything goes wrong for him. Yeah. But ultimately, everything goes right. Do you know what I mean? He kind of, like, you know, he, um, like, he just manages to make a mess of everything. Yeah. He? Like, yeah. he's smashing things and, you know, just causing havoc and stuff. But nothing never lands on him. Do you like, know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. he always just seems to kind of get away. But now he becomes a millionaire in the, uh, in the towards the end of the gold rush. But there's a bit where uh, he picks up a cigar off of uh, off of the floor yeah. and he just starts smoking it. Can't leave his yeah, old habits behind. He can't yeah, betray his roots, can he? <laughs> Play dust on his socks. <laughs> Do you know it was based on a true story of uh, well, not the whole film obviously, but the the shoe eating scene okay. of some. Uh, Prospectors the, that are stranded. Yeah, and ate their own they ate their own shoes. Right. And the bodies of their comrades. Okay. Turn that into a Chaplin, uh, didn't go that far, did he? <laughs> no. Three years later, uh, the circus comes along, which is another one that is, you know, this is on his run of, you know, just knocking the ball out of the park each time. The circus, first third of the circus is up there as well, and it? it's like, I mean, it's all, it is all very good, but it's, it's tremendous isn't it that first third is as good as anything he's ever done there's a lovely premise as well in the uh, Chaplin as a tramp gets a job in a circus um, as a comedian but the only reason he works is when he's trying not to be a comedian yeah anytime he actually tries to do something funny it goes wrong uh, not necessarily well and funny it just goes wrong but inadvertently He'll make hilarious things happen. Mm. So, and it's quite nice, you know, for Chaplin, I guess, to be in a position where he can sort of go, you know, what if I wasn't funny? What if it was all just a fluke sort of thing? Yeah, the opening bit where he's uh, nicking the food off the baby. So funny, they sort of like teasing the baby and then sort of nicking a bit of food and stuff. <laughs> Great. And yeah, that and that sort of leads into this whole he accidentally becomes the kind of star attraction of the circus, yeah. doesn't he, basically? Ruins the uh, magician's act, and again, so many geese. How do you trust these geese to do what you want them to do? And he can't, so I guess it's just him responding to what these geese are doing. Great. The bit where he's having a, he's trying to get away from the police, and he, and uh, there's like those again a common thing. Yeah, there's the kind of automaton Noah's Ark. Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. And he's up there pretending to be part of it, you know, <laughs> doing this. Oh, just brilliant. City lights, probably. Uh, closest scene to a romantic comedy that Chaplin did in the the sort of the undercurrent of romance I mean obviously yeah romance does it comes in and out in and out films but with this there's a there's a continuing theme of uh, this woman that Chaplin's besotted with and his attempts to sort of get closer to her and help her out and you know it's probably the closest thing to what we think of as a sort of standard rom-com ending where they end up you know, hands clutched, mm. adoringly staring down at each other as uh, they realise who they both are. I mean, and as I say, it's it's easy to look at it and go, it's very standard tropes of misidentification and misunderstanding and helping someone and they don't know who's actually helping them. But, um, you know, from, from this era, it would have been unparalleled, I think, in mm. terms of uh, someone trying that out. The scenes with uh, the millionaire uh, trying to commit suicide are <laughs> brilliant. That's the highlight, yeah. isn't it? Well, just uh, the millionaire generally and his uh, 
amnesia where when he's drunk he remembers exactly who Chaplin is and all the adventures they have together but every time he falls asleep and so goes like, who is this guy and why is he in my house so Chaplin's constantly get thrown out of the house and then running into the guy like three days later and the guy's like embracing him like a lost you know long lost brother sort of thing it's not one of my favourites I must admit I mean it's good but I think it's the highest rated one on IMDb which I wouldn't really I hope people are taking notes Steve because really they need to go and download or watch these things on YouTube immediately I'll do links because basically don't let them get away with it get a pen and write some notes they're all on YouTube aren't they and the thing is it's so long ago that you don't have to worry about uh, no exactly everybody in it I mean the kid right who's six years old in it he's dead now yeah everybody's dead no one's getting royalties apart from the Roy Export Company in Paris exactly. whoever they are and if and, you know it's not like you're doing uh, Chaplin out of any money or his kids his kids all do fine you know the Chaplin family did very well out of this whole world did I tell you my dad met one of uh, the kids oh really yeah he's got a photo with one of them Christopher is it looks there's, just like him there's man. about 15 of them there's it's a lot of them in there. but my dad was um he's you've got some Charlie Chaplin get up you know and yeah. he was doing uh, doing it for the kids at school and uh, they did a project on Chaplin which was then moved to a bigger thing where a load of people did projects on Chaplin and my dad was there doing it and he's very very good at it he does uh, that what's, which film is the dance from Steve where he's like um, is it in the gold rush where he's singing in Italian and he's doing that dance where he's yeah. like scooting backwards he does that very well yeah okay yeah, write this one down. 1936 Modern Times. You'll be aware of it. Or you'll have seen shots from it, even if you don't mm. know where it's from. Uh, it's got the, I don't know, just iconic in the history of cinema. That, that shot of Chaplin moving through the machine. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah going just, through the gears. Yeah. Uh, remarkable. Uh, as I say, remarkable cinema when you watch it now. It's like you went to see um, Metropolis recently. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's such a great film that you watch it now and you're blown away by it it's not a yeah you are, you are you're taking it into account when it was made and going mm. oh it's been great to see it then you just watch it now and going that's still an amazing thing yeah yeah it is yeah yeah modern times holds up perfectly as well like the kid they're both just you, you watch a double bill and you, you just thoroughly enjoy both another one that deals you know with the scenes where you talk about where Chaplin you talk about you know working life and the rigours of yeah and the struggle to you know survive and you know, make your money so you can mm. live. It's not, you know, as you say, a lot of these films end with him in a very comfortable position or well-to-do, but the films are generally him just struggling, just like swimming <laughs> against the tide, isn't it? You know? Being part of the production line, and there is a literal production yeah. line, and that's, yeah. that's magical, isn't it? Yeah. Most of Chaplin's films are kind of set pieces strung together, and... And always in a coherent way, though. I mean, it's kind of, there is, it's not just like, oh, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Uh, because, you know, if you know, if you've seen any of the extras or, you know, read about Chaplin, you'll know that he was, he put so much work into perfecting things. You know, it's not just like, oh, let's do this sequence, let's do this, yeah. let's do this, oh, I'd quite like that to do this. Do. That yeah, will do. Yeah, no, exactly. That's not his attitude, is it? With modern times, I feel like every set piece is, is, is great. Mm. Like, you know, it starts with, the, like, the production line one, you know, where he's just, he's like, starts, um, uh, he's like tightening up these bolts and he starts doing it to people's clothes and stuff. <laughs> uh, and then, like you say, he goes into the machine. But it's, it's important to remember, you know, the period we're looking at here. Chaplin, you know, we talked about him 
starting off as a great comedian and becoming more assured in what he does and establishing tropes. This is him, you know, with the experience of previous, you know, not just shorts, but features behind him. He would have done yeah. hundreds of hours of film at this point. You know, it's uh, you know, the outliers thing about doing 10,000 hours of something. He spent 10,000 hours yeah. working on films. He, and th- this is arguably his peak, his peak in modern yeah. times, yeah. I think. Even though The Kid is my favourite, modern times probably my second favourite. You know, in terms of the craft and stuff, yeah. I think it's arguably... It's just got a polish to it. The nose powder sequence, Steve. Great, in it? Yeah, just Again, it comes back to him about you know, just covering his food completely <laughs> in salt. <laughs> but yeah, there's this, he's uh, in prison, isn't he? And there's uh, someone sticks a load of nose powder, you know, in uh, quotation marks, in the salt shaker. And obviously, you know, Charlie Chapman gets high. And uh, we've had various consequences. <laughs> But yeah, the de- again another one where he gets you know he's on the roller skates in the department store, and it' great. Just like it's just another talent to add to the thing, isn't it? It's just extraordinary. And and you know back to the sort of physicality and the the, the adaptability he had to the physicality where he could do things very slowly and methodically and make them funny, do things in a furious manner, and, make and do things where it looks like he's entirely out of control. Mm. And that's the key to it, isn't it? It has to look like he's entirely out of control, but. You know, he's always in control. He's just got this this physical mastery of uh, what he's doing. I've just looked at my notes, Steve, and the dance where he sings in Italian and he oh, yeah. does that dance that is in modern times, Excellent. but not before uh, when the other guy gets stuck in the cogs, which is also brilliant. Yeah, but you know, you could just go on about modern times and do a podcast on that. The film as well. It's nine years after the first talkie comes out, so like people are you know silent films are already like kind of quite old hat yeah but it's a masterpiece of sound I think you know, that's where you got Smile like his most the most famous song he ever composed yeah. you know, which is a wonderful piece of music and there is some talking in it yeah but it's minimal and it doesn't need it it doesn't like it's just like the music's great the music is uh, unlike where in the past you would have had someone sitting on a piano in <laughs> the uh, cinema screen the music you can set it against the actual film itself. Yeah, exactly. Right? If I can lead into the next film, Steve, like his kind of last... Uh... Well, this is it. The, the, the whole... The rise of the talkie was seen as, as you know, that it was going to be the end of silent film. You know, the, the king of silent films was Chaplin. Was this going to mean the end of Chaplin's career? And, you know, again, it's covered in the Chaplin biopic. People on all sides were sort of going, do a talkie, do a talkie, do a talkie. Um, and Chaplin's take on the whole thing was... Once the tramp talks, he can never be seen again. That's it. It's the end of that character. You know, I can't do him anymore. So if I'm going to do him, he's going to talk. It's going to be a substantial piece. And this is, again, Chaplin moves to another level here in, with uh, the next film we're going to talk about, where he moves into... You know, there's, there's satirical elements in all his films. There's a, an anti-authoritarian streak that runs through it. Um, but with The Great Dictator... Chaplin basically goes after, uh, so, and not just anyone, <laughs> decides to uh, take on Adolf Hitler. Yeah, and it is most definitely a talkie, isn't it? I would say Modern Times is it's almost like it's not a talkie, but it is a sound picture. It's a soundie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas uh, The Great Dictator is the whole hog. Yeah. Made in 1940, so it's just a sort of, you know, thin end of the Second World War. I mean, and Chaplin says that he wouldn't have been able to make it. Like he wouldn't have been able to go through that if he'd have known the full extent of what was happening Absolutely. to the Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very important sort of place when it was made. It was at a time when, uh, to a lot of people, 
you know, Hitler was seen as, you know, a bit of a laughing stock. He was mm. this sort of uh, ridiculous looking and sounding character. And it is, it's with hindsight that you look at him as uh, a monstrous figure, knowing the sort of the mechanisms that he had in place. You know, he was industrializing genocide. But, you know, Chaplin's take on it was uh, he was uh, a liberal throughout his life. And that had caused him a lot of problems uh, in Hollywood, even up to this point. And, you know, it's important to remember that making a film against uh, the Nazi party in 1940 in America was never going to be a popular move. America wasn't at war with Germany. Uh, when you say it's never going to be a popular move, I mean, with, it became his most successful film. Oh, absolutely. But th- th- he wouldn't have been surrounded by people encouraging him to do this project. No. There's no way producers and you know his friends and family would have been going, definitely do this. Because there was, there was a huge... Uh, fear in America at the time of, of communism yeah. and a lot of and you know around the world of communism and a lot of people saw Hitler as a solution to that they thought you know the final solution yeah, this is it this guy will clear out the communists we'll negotiate a peace with him and it, it'll all be spring fine spring time for Hitler <laughs> so you know Chaplin uh, doing a piece attacking him you know uh, similarly uh and it is, it's tangential in comics, but I think I can justify it. You know, around the same time, you've got Joe Simon and Jack Kirby creating Captain America. Um, and there's a famous story of uh, Kirby being at the Marvel offices in New York, uh, working on the character. And he gets a phone call uh, from downstairs where there's four American Nazis who were... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know... So, uh, but they... they, they, they um, Red Skull is not a... <laughs> they rang up and said, uh, "Yeah, we're American. We don't agree with. Uh, we think it's sick that you're setting an American character against these people who could be our saviors. Um, we're going to deal with you." And Kirby's like, "Come up," yeah. and they're like, "No, no, no, you'll you get yours." <laughs> and he goes, "All right, I'll come down. Wait there." And uh, he, he immediately gets the elevator and goes. They've gone by the time he gets downstairs because they don't actually want to fight Jack Kirby, uh, who was. Uh, but, but you know, similarly on the other on the other coast, you know, there would have been uh, anti-communist agitators and even pro-Nazi agitators that wouldn't have wanted uh, Chaplin to make this film. But as you say, he goes on to make it, and it becomes his most spectacular, uh, most successful film to date. Yeah, and uh, remains one of his most famous, doesn't it? I mean, the, the fact that he shares a moustache with Hitler, anyway. This is the thing. I mean, again, in, in the Chaplin biopic, uh, they they sort of give it a, a sort of false origin, where there's a combination of factors where Chaplin's at a, a dinner party, and uh, there's this guy uh, doing an anti-Semitic rant, and they take a Chaplin quote uh, and recontextualise it, where Chaplin in an interview was once asked about uh, the possibility of his being Jewish. And his his half brother was uh, half Jewish. They had the same mother, but uh, his his half brother's uh, father was Jewish. Um, so Chaplin was always very sensitive, and this is obviously before anyone knew about the Holocaust. He just knew that you know, obviously. Uh, well, they were they were persecuted. Absolutely, before, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the film, uh, they take the quote from the interview where there's a scene where there's this uh, hot just this. Nazi, essentially, uh, talking about the good that Hitler's going to do and the, the removal of this vermin race and whatnot. And uh, Chaplin just sort of says something against the guy. And uh, the guy says, um, are you a Jew, Mr. Chaplin? 
and uh, Chapman says, I, I'm afraid I don't have uh, the distinction of having that honour. And just walks away from the table. Um, and, and then, you know, in another sort of you know, false origins film, someone says to him, oh, uh, you've got the same moustache. And at that point, yeah. he uh, kicks into action. But yeah, I, I mean, you know. There's a, yeah, there is a kind of misconception that he is Jewish, isn't there? Chapman? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I saw a great quote um, from a guy called Robert Leslie Liebman, who's some film critic somewhere, uh, said, although, because, I mean, there's, to an extent, Chaplin's roots are not fully known. So no, there's yeah. a chance that he was a part Jewish, but not yeah. enough for it to be significant, I don't think. And he says, uh, although, although he was probably not Jewish, his immortal silent tramp was... And he sort of makes this things with like the David and Goliath, the kind of Jewish pariah. Um, <laughs> well, as I say, this is the thing. Uh, Chaplin was, was always sensitive to uh, anti-Semitism throughout his life and, you know, held liberal views and, you know, set a, a, a lot of people on edge in America in, in the 40s uh, because of that. Yeah, I mean, the character in The Radiator is a great pain to explain it isn't the tramp. Yeah. It's essentially the tramp, but he, he calls him the Jewish barber. Yeah, but so I he, think, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, the thing is, he's still wearing the same moustache, which he ha- the things he has to to yeah. do the Hitler thing, yeah, did he? Yeah. But he doesn't have the same walk or anything. I mean, he's no, not no. the tramp, no, you know, no. but it's not a middle mile. It taps into a It's lot like of Adam Sandler, right? You know, he's not playing the guy from Big Daddy in the next film, is he? But, he but he's still doing the Adam Sandler <laughs> But Chaplin's better. <laughs> I don't think this is a great place to start for people, The Great Dictator. No, definitely don't start. No, and I've. I think it's overrated. I don't. I'm not a big fan of it. Now, there's a mix of talk of obviously there's talking scenes, to put it one way, and there's the kind of classic uh, Chaplin stuff. You know, is uh, the pantomime. Yeah, the kind of yeah the you know the yeah is that the mime kind of stuff, the silent stuff. Yeah. But the trouble is, it starts off with a really bad um, scene with a missile, and you know, like the missile spinning. It's horrendous. Yeah. It's terrible. Um, not 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 very funny. And then the talking stuff, he's doing like a lot of kind of Groucho Marx style stuff, but he's no Groucho Marx, is he? No, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, his previous one was modern times, but this is the one where modernity really intrudes on the film. You know, in the previous film, he uses uh, the ideas of the modern world to great effect. And in this, they just seem to detract from the film, if anything. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are some good bits, you know, like uh, the bit, you know, he's doing his first speech as uh, Adenoid Hinkle. I'm sure you can guess who that's uh, based on, <laughs> and he's he's doing this kind of false um, German, well, Tomanian, and that, and he starts coughing and he does some quite funny stuff. And even that it just goes on too long. But it? like with Adnoid Hinkle, as soon as he goes into speech and words, it, it, it straight away you're bringing it into the territory of the the Marx Brothers mm. and, and Laurel and Hardy to a lesser extent. But particularly the Marx Brothers, that's the, as you say, the immediate comparison is to Groucho. But Groucho mastered that. He was the best at that. He was great. Chaplin was the king of physical comedy. And I know there'll be fans of Howard and the Buster Key and they'll make cases for that. But in terms of, you know, dialogue at that point, and, you know, for a long time after, Groucho Marx was the master. He Yeah, know, I mean, you still see his quotes thrown around, don't you? Absolutely. And when you watch, it? and again, you know, this is a, a tiny segue, but if you watch a Marx Brothers film, there's so much of it, A, that seems uh, cliched, but again, that's the first yeah, time you hear that yeah. joke. Uh, and B, still funny. It's still good. You know, that's uh, remarkable. The other thing that goes against Chaplin is his voice is not great, is it? That was always Chaplin's fear. You know, partly the fact that 
he knew his, where his strengths were, but he also knew where his weaknesses were. He knew that once it came down to speech, he wasn't going to be the best. He wasn't going to be... Yeah. It wasn't playing to his strengths. And, you know, that was the thing where, yeah, he had a remarkable run, as you say. You know, modern times, nine years after Talkie's become standard, and he's yeah, still, he's still yeah. you know... Like an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. There is a great scene that could have been in The Gold Rush, or whenever, you know, um, one of the silent films, where... I was watching this yesterday, right, and I only had one eye on it, so you might have to remind me what the reason was. They've got to go and do something over there. There's like five guys sitting in, in a row, four guys, and they've all got a, a pudding each, and whoever's got the coin in the pudding yeah, yeah. has to go and do the deed, whatever yeah. it is. And, uh, you know, they're just shuffling about, shuffling, he eats this coin, like he sort of swallows it down so that uh, he doesn't have to go yeah, and do yeah. it. And then the guy next to him has also got a coin in his, so he shoves it over <laughs> and he swallows that as well. And that's great, isn't it? Like, there is, it's still, even with a great dictator, you know, even, I mean, there'll probably be people listening and outraged um, who like it's their favourite Chaplin film. No, but but even but even though I'm not a huge fan of it, there's still just some great great stuff in yeah. there. Isn't there, and it's we're back to uh, Chaplin and things he's not supposed to eat. You know, no one did it better. <laughs> yeah, he sort he put some sugar on it. I think <laughs> you're not a fan of the final speech. No, like someone, my friend Joe put it up on Facebook uh, the other week, uh, just on top of some images. You know, I guess it was like a Michael Moore type yeah. thing, you know, with like, you know, show some images and just something just imposes it. But yeah, the final speech, um, the Jewish barber has managed to sort of trade places with his doppelganger, Adenoid Hinkle. And he does this speech about how, you know, how much better it would be if we all were. Uh, you know, loved one another and stuff. And, and the thing is, it's all, it's inarguable, isn't it? It's one of those things where you go, yeah. yeah. But you're not really going to talk people no. into world peace here. No. But I just found it hammy, man, that yeah. that ending. It just goes on and on as well. Yeah, he came to Europe again afterwards, didn't he? And uh, was basically refused re-entry into America. Yeah, I basically. Did, I did read that he could have um, contested it, but he sort of decided not to and just went to live in um, Vive, Switzerland. He made uh, a very powerful enemy in J. Edgar Hoover, who, as part of his uh, search for communists and would-be communists, had Chaplin marked down very early as a, as a danger. And they basically took the opportunity of Chaplin leaving the country to uh, not allow him back again. So, yeah, he uh, moves to Switzerland and spends, spends, you know, makes some more films, but spends a, a lot of time... Revisiting the old films, doesn't he? Sort of re-editing and reforming and adding the voiceover. And oh, whatnot. I suppose yeah. Well, forty-two would have been the um, when the Gold Rush was redone. Yeah, it made uh, a number of films afterwards. Uh, Limelight, um, Countess in Hong, Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. Which I think we could probably come back to at some point, Steve, because it's got Margaret Rutherford in it. Oh, okay. I was thinking, uh, you know, I'm sure we could. That's two south on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Film. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm, you know, our minimum's one. So, <laughs> yeah. Again, um, the Chaplin biopic uh, covers his ground well, well, where it, it's basically a, a series of events where Chaplin uh, rubs uh, Hoover up the wrong way and refuses to condemn communism and, you know, just espouses liberal ideas that would have uh, set off alarm bells to, you know, McCarthyites and Hoover and whatnot at the time. Yeah, he also does the uh, roll dance while uh, Hoover's talking, doesn't he? That yeah. upsets him. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin dies on Christmas Day in 1977. He's buried in Switzerland. Someone major died the next day, didn't they? 
There was a film director, I can't remember what it was now. Okay. Someone like Howard Hawks or someone. Oh, right. Kind of like the next day. Someone like of a huge yeah. influence in uh, comedy history. Chaplin's story doesn't end with his death, though. Doesn't it? Oh, we've got DVDs and stuff, haven't we? Do you know what happened in 1978? No. March the 1st, 1978, Chaplin's coffin is dug up and stolen. Really? It's then held to ransom by two uh, Polish men. Uh, the family refused to pay up, at which point the men threatened to kidnap members of the Chaplin family as well. I have no idea where they're storing Chaplin's coffin, uh, but it's out there for three months. Oh, wow. It's eventually uh, found. The two men are arrested and sent to prison. Um, he's then reinterred at the same cemetery under six feet of reinforced concrete. So 15 years to the day after he died, uh, the film comes out, Chaplin, which seems such a short space of time now, doesn't it? It does seem remarkable. Yeah. I would never, if you just asked me to sort of place, mm. I would have thought 30 years. But no, yeah. but the yeah. thing is, just think is, say, uh, 60 years between City Lights and the Bar Pig, so you know, course, if you think yeah. about it yeah. in those terms. Yeah, I remember this, uh, I remember as a kid this being like a huge film, you know, like that clip of uh, Robert Downey Jr. messing about with the roles was, was everywhere. Yeah. But it sort of faded from memory, isn't it? Yeah, I saw it. I would have I saw it around the time it came out. I don't remember seeing it in the cinema. I might have seen it on video. Ninety two, you would have been what? Fifteen? Ninety two thirteen. So yeah, I I saw it around that time. I guess it would have been on telly or something. And um I remember enjoying it at the time. You know, it's a a, a fantastic cast. Uh, you know, a few highlights, John Thor plays uh, Fred Carno uh, Dan Aykroyd plays Max Senna you know it, it's it's directed uh, by Rich Attenborough um, who you know this is after Gandhi he's a huge deal he can get pretty much and it's a, it's a huge project you know to do a chapter yeah, by it's I Danny Jr. is inspired casting I mean he's wonderful in the role but the film watching it again recently uh it's very glossy. Yes, yeah, I thought it was uh, absolute junk, Steve. Well, yeah, this is the thing that it's 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 glossy and it's got good people in it, but it's not a good film. No, it's not at all. It's got a really lazy sort of. It's so by the numbers. I only watched half, right? Right. And I did intend to watch the rest, uh, but Xavier last night would not stop crying, and like, you know, the evening just disappeared. She hated the film. She was like, turn this off. Anything but this. Put Ted back on. She said it was formulaic. (laughs) Everybody knows that after horror films, biopics are the worst genre of films. (laughs) You know, it's just, they're just so like, you know, show him as a kid, cut to this, cut to that. But it's not even, I've got, I I, I can watch a biopic, but a biopic that is structured around a framing sequence where he sat down with his biographer which didn't happen, as we've established, he wrote his autobiography no. for himself. But he's basically got his editor there going, and, and the thing is, even if it was just so a frame sequence. So tell me, Charlie, about. Uh, yeah, well, that's, if it was just a frame sequence, where it's like, so Charlie, you'll tell us your story. And then it cuts to, and, it's just, and at the end, it's like, and that's your story, Charlie. Well, thank you. Mm. But instead, every sort of 20 minutes or so, it'll cut back to uh, Robert Downey Jr. and who is it? It's someone really famous playing. The, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, uh, just in, in Switzerland. And it'll just be Anthony Hopkins going, but there's more to your mother than that, Charlie. Isn't there? <laughs> and it cuts up. It's like, yeah. okay. 
So, but Charlie, you butted heads with many famous people in America <laughs> at this point. Cut to, and you're like, oh, this is... It's just, it's very, yeah. you know, lazy. And, it, and, and, I don't know, is it arguable that screenwriters got more sophisticated in the last... Because, you know, again, it's quite a distance again. I, I, I can't imagine that being released. I mean, there's still bad films being made, obviously. There are a lot, but you don't... I don't think you see as many trashy biopics anymore. I just don't think you could get away with that structure as well. I don't think... I don't know, there are some pretty dreadful films. Yeah, mm. this is the... Anytime I hear... Um, Framing device or for a yeah. for a biopic. I'm like, oh. I should say I can get by. Like, with a like Titanic. Yeah, I mean Titanic's obviously a rubbish film, but like it starts off some old ladies looking for a ring, and it, oh, just yeah. show the, just start the sink, film, just man. Sink that ship. Come on, this what we're here for. But like but, you know, within the first uh, few minutes, you just like this is going to be dreadful. You know the the scene. The childhood scene, basically, like of you know, he's he's on stage. As you said, let yeah, him yeah. have a go. Yeah. But the scene where he's at home and like you know, someone's banging the going, I'm warning you, Mrs. Chaplin, if you don't pay my rent, like he's just like spelling yeah, yeah. things out for you in it. Yeah. Sorry, it's only fish heads today. Like that's <laughs> literally a line of dialogue, and she literally says, "When my ship comes in, you know, you just." It's not funny in any way, either, is it? That's, that's the trouble. The other thing is, it's well. a bit like the uh, like Man in the Moon. Man, oh, on right, the moon. Yeah. Man on the Moon, sorry. The Andy Kaufman. The Kaufman. Yeah. yeah. Um, with uh, Jim Carrey, who's great as Andy yeah. Kaufman. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant as him. But it's not in any way funny. And I guess you could argue that Andy Kaufman Didn't isn't to many people. And there was a, a, a you know an element of tragedy to his life as well. But, but yeah. How I mean, do you do it? How can you do a Chaplin film well if it's not at all funny? Maybe yeah. it's the second hour is funny. No, I doubt. I, and the thing is with Robert Downey Jr. as well, I think it feels to me like one of those things where. You know, you just... I mean, I'm not accusing you of just repeating what you've heard, Steve. But, like, no, but I'm not. <laughs> but you know where it's just like, oh, Robert Downey Jr.'s great in it. Is he? I don't think he's that good. He's all right. But, like, it's just such a badly written film. Nobody could be that good in it, could Yeah, they? no, this is the thing. It's not, you know... He I, does I, quite a good English accent, you know. I think... And well, he does look like him a bit. I, I think... No, I think, to be fair, uh, obviously, he's not Chaplin. But he, he does the physicality of the role very well as well. And I think that's a big part in getting it over in any way. It, yeah, yeah, but he does, but you're not laughing, are you? No, no, no. But, and that's why Chaplin's better. But, <laughs> but the, the very fact that he can do a reasonable facsimile of Chaplin is beyond the, you know, I, I mean, yeah, probably, that, I it's probably a bit tougher for you because you grew up in a household where you're living with a man who is constantly doing no, facsimile but oddly, we, oddly, we didn't. Like, my dad seemed to have, I, was, I presume he was into it before recently, but it was, it's only the last decade he's got more heavily into right. it. So Chaplin wasn't really a presence growing up. Like Dad Dylan wasn't or constantly Dulwich. tripping into the front room. But no, uh, <laughs> the sequence where, uh, you know, he uh, auditions for Senate and does the sequence, you know... Where well, uh, he pretends to play drunk. Yeah, it's not... It's not where, it's, where he plays drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Pretending to pretend. <laughs> he was actually very drunk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's just... There wouldn't have been many actors that physically would have resembled Chaplin and been able to put in that physical performance. Mm. I, you know, I, I don't... It doesn't... I don't think it comes anywhere close to saving the film. Though, no, 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 re- not at all. It's bad and don't watch I mean, it. And you know, I'm not watching it. In other, in other interesting casting points, you know, Chaplin's mother is played by Chaplin's daughter. Yeah, you know Geraldine Chaplin plays her own grandmother, which is a lovely touch. And her daughter is in uh, Game of Thrones. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I would like to have watched the Cat's Meow, which is um, which is a film in which Eddie Izzard plays Chaplin, and it's directed by Peter Bogdanovich, or who obviously like 
doesn't hasn't made you know he was a huge director in the early 70s he did Paper Moon and The Last Picture Show and was a huge director in the 70s and kind of famously career just kind of came to nothing really but he made that a few years ago and it's a, someone plays William Randolph Hearst and it's, it's about a, a murder boat, on a steam line now I think. Yeah, yeah. That's it. yeah I've never seen it no but, and yeah. I don't know how good it is because I can't trust my dad's opinion on it yeah uh, but um I saw a quote from someone that said it was quite good, so I'll probably watch that at some stage. I don't know if we ever talk about it on the show, but it can't be worse. <laughs> In a, a very tangential link, uh, I watched Holy Motors recently, which is entirely unplayed as Chaplin. Um, but Superb, though. That's wonderful. Just so good. And uh, I was just sort of, you know, when you sort of like you watch a film. And you haven't read anything about it before because you don't want to spoil it. And you're like, who did this? So you're just like reading everything about the director and the actor. And the actor, uh, Dennis Larax, is it? Somewhere around. Yeah. The, the, the lead guy from Holy Motors. I was just like reading through it. So he'd worked with um, the director of Holy Motors on a couple of other projects. But also, uh, just read this thing on Wikipedia. I was like, what? What did he do? And uh, it was him appearing in Mr. Lonely, which is the Harmony Korean film from music, which I'd never seen. Um, all about a commune made up of impersonators. And he played a Chaplin impersonator in the film. So I was like, this is perfect. I get to watch another film with this guy, a Harmony Korean film, and I might get something for the show out of it. And this is where um, I think credit has to be given to... Uh, Richard Attenborough? No, the actor. Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Because having seen Holy Motors, physically, that guy's an incredible actor, isn't he? In terms of yeah, movie. So, so casting him in the role, and it's not Chaplin, Chaplin person now, but as a Chaplin-esque character, you'd imagine it's yeah. a no-brainer. He doesn't really. 12 seconds, there's like a sequence in a uh, talent show where he trips over something. Um, and like, that's not the point of the film. It's, no. it's about, you know, bigger, oh, bigger things. Yeah. But yeah, it was just so sort of disappointing. I was like, you know, and it, yeah, as I say, once I read it was a Harmony Korean film and had other people in it that I liked, and the whole premise of it appealed to me. Um, it was just sort of like, oh, this is, it's just a shame. Regular listeners, uh, remember you can get the first 50 episodes of South London Hardcore on a disc for £15 if you go to our website and click the shop link. Um, new listeners who are just here for Chaplin, don't worry about it. You know, you've, uh, you're new. Yeah, these, you have, there's other people, they've listened to loads of episodes for free and they need to put their hand in their pocket. <laughs> you might want you guys, to... Uh... Yeah, you go to southlondonhardcore.com, click player or go to the iTunes link or whatever. Uh, click the episode guide and you can see all our old episodes and have you know dig through man you might find something you like can I leave us Steve with a Chaplin quote please from, from 1915 go for it so that's like what 97 years ago uh, motion picture comedy is still in its infancy in the next few years I expect so many improvements that you could scarcely recognise the comedy of the present day mm-hmm.